The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools, an investor seeking promising ag tech startups, or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com or click the link in the show notes. I think I've always been very into biology through my education. I think like in school, I was a little bit of a science nerd. So science and math was always something somewhat of a strong point. And I think after sort of choosing to do an engineering degree, or at least, you know, deciding to do it pre actually getting in, biology stood out. So I kind of wanted to do something that maybe had this, not just pure engineering, but had a bit of a sort of like the living world attached to it, which was biotech because, you know, it kind of has both elements. And the plant genetic side of things was really during the choice of deciding to study a master's. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ad tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast Season 6, welcome back. If this is your first time listening, I always roll out the green carpet to new listeners. This is the show where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. I'm your host, Harry Duran. In case you missed last week's episode, I had a really great conversation with Eric Eisel, entrepreneur, environmentalist, and CEO of GrowFlux, a company that offers automation and cloud technologies aimed at resource efficiency and yield expansion for indoor farms and greenhouses. We had a great conversation about his Philly roots, his rich experience in design and architecture, wireless engineering, and renewable energy, and went deep on circadian lighting, providing controls for lighting, and his passion for fostering resource efficiency and environmental stewardship in agriculture. Please check that out if you haven't. It's a deep dive, especially for those that are interested in all the innovations happening in the lighting space. This week, another conversation born out of my visit to Indoor AgTech NYC. It's Keenan Pinto. He's the founder and CEO of Nordetect. It's a real-time nutrient analysis product with cloud-connected hardware and accessible software that allows farmers to test their own soil samples and see results in real time. We talk about his applications for this software in the vertical farming industry, his vision for improving the equity, quality, and footprint of food through technology, 
his entrepreneurial journey, and why he chose to relocate to Denmark. We touch on the challenges he faced as a first-time CEO and the opportunities he's seeing in indoor ag and what the future holds for Nordetect. Don't forget, if you enjoyed this episode or past episodes, I'd love it if you leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. I am on the lookout for some new ones. So if you're the type of person that likes to hear your name read out, uh, I will be sure to give you a shout out or I can leave it anonymous if you'd like. ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. Okay, before we jump into this uninterrupted conversation with Keenan Pinto, here are a few words from the folks that support this show. This episode is brought to you by NetLed. From consultation and technology to services and maintenance, NetLed has the complete package. Whether it's your first vertical farm or you need help scaling an existing operation, NetLed can help. They offer both service and technology business solutions for vegetable and herb producers from pilot phase projects to industrial scale mass production. And with Vera, you have the only true end-to-end turnkey vertical farming solution on the market. Learn more at netled.fi, or you can visit their North American Showcase facility in Calgary, Canada. If you'll be attending the Global Produce and Floral Show in Orlando, Florida, this October 27th through 29th, then please visit the NetLed booth at the Future Tech Pavilion. The team would love to meet you. So, Keenan Pinto, founder and CEO of Nordetect, thank you so much for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me, Harry. So I appreciate you being flexible for the benefit of listener. You want to let folks know where you're calling in from and what time of day it is. <laughs> yeah, sure. I'm calling in from Copenhagen, Denmark. Okay. 7 p.m. right now. I had a nice day at work and uh, looking forward to this chat. Yeah, I think the interesting thing with this industry, it is truly a global industry. And I, you know, when you look at what's happening with uh, the folks at iGrow do a great job with their daily newsletter and you see the activity happening. I mean, it, today's news was about what's happening in China, Dubai, India, as I'm sure you know, we can speak a little bit about that, what's happening in Europe. Is it the same for you? Do you feel like this is almost like a 24-7 activity when it comes to tracking what's happening in the industry? Oh, for sure. I think that we, how we got in touch was at the Indoor AgTech Summit in New York City. Yeah. And so we flew down for that. And most of our customers are either east or west of Copenhagen. So okay. I think it's you got to be up early and, and up late as well. So around the clock almost. But I think that that's one of the interesting things about this is that because it's a young up and coming and in almost some ways nascent industry, you start to see activity everywhere. And if you're in a space where you're looking at acquiring customers, then they're popping up everywhere. So yeah, you have to be where the conversations are happening. Exactly. Yeah. So was that your first indoor ag conference? Or had you been to a couple by then? I think in person? Yes, it's been a while, right? So I think yeah. in person? Yes, we did a couple of online events some time ago over the past, let's say, I did the same event last year online, and then one in the middle. Okay. But for in-person, yes, it's been the first one of late. What was the experience like for you? I know coming from the podcasting world and a couple of conferences I attended when I was in my corporate job, there's a different vibe that happens when you're in person with folks. And what I like, I've mentioned this a couple of times, that what I liked about Indoor Ag Tech NYC was that it was single track. So everyone got to attend all the sessions and they timed it in a way where it was really well structured. So you had allotted time to meet the vent, see the vendors, and then also to have some uh, one-offs during lunch. I think they did a really good job. What was your experience like? I think I definitely enjoyed that kind of balance as well. So we had a stand and that balance between you, ha- you know, having the guests go for 
sort of the lectures, the conference sessions, and then being able to balance that out also with the meetings and the networking. I think that was very interesting because I think a couple of times what happened with me is that either the meeting I booked was impromptu canceled or the person was late, we couldn't find each other. And you ended up meeting with someone else who was also waiting for someone. And just because everyone was in the same industry, those connections ended up being ones that were actually fruitful. So, you know, the kind of water cooler almost type of thing worked out for us at least. So would you say the conference was a success for you? I would say so. I'd say that it was interesting to the point that we're still getting follow-ups, which is awesome. Uh, I think it's been almost maybe two months now or three months now, and we're still having conversations with there's clients, potential customers that are reaching out and, and also potential vendors that we have ongoing conversations with. So definitely a, a success. So home is currently Copenhagen. Has it? How long has that been home for you and, and where did you grow up? So I was born and raised in Bombay okay. in India. And I say Bombay because when I was born and raised there, it was called Bombay and then they changed it to Mumbai. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so that's that's sort of where, that's sort of the original home. I moved to Copenhagen in 2015. So it's been okay. seven odd years now. Yeah. And what prompted the move? Interestingly, my family moved here sometime around 2010. And I have a background in biotech. And my dad was on about the fact that Denmark is a nation that has some of the biggest biotech companies, you know, the insulin producers, the enzyme producers, they're like number one in their respective spaces. And I had completed my master's in the UK. I'm a plant genetic engineer by education. So that's sort of the red thread with the indoor ag industry in many ways. And I was kind of sold on the idea of moving to Denmark because of the sort of standard of living for one, but also the work-life balance. It was very attractive. I had family here, but I think what I didn't expect was that eventually would lead to an entrepreneurial journey because I think in, in many ways it's sort of the inverse because typically with startups, the work-life balance sometimes goes out the window, you know? Yeah. Non-existent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm curious, you mentioned your father and then your interest in, in plant genetics. How did that develop for you early on for you to decide that's something you wanted to study more in depth? I think I've always been very into biology through my education. I think like in school, I was a little bit of a science nerd. So science and math was always something somewhat of a strong point. And I think after sort of choosing to do an engineering degree, or at least, you know, deciding to do it pre actually getting in, biology stood out. So I kind of wanted to do something that maybe had this, not just pure engineering, but had a bit of a sort of like the living world attached to it, which was biotech, because you know, it kind of has both elements. And the plant genetic side of things was really during the choice of deciding to study a master's. I think towards the end of my bachelor's, I had this sort of interest in plants. Uh, at the time, this was about 2012, there was a lot of talk about how we can produce novel compounds in bacteria, and we can do that in yeast. But there was plant cell culture and plant cell factories was kind of touted as the future. And I thought that this is great, right? Because if we could produce novel compounds in plants, then you don't have to build, you could just grow them. You could grow these either medicinal compounds or others. And that's kind of what got me into it. 
And I think that, I think the genetic side, there was always maybe this affinity. I think that at one point, a professor at university said that, you know, you have biology is an extremely vast area, but when you go into genetics and molecular biology, that's where you really start to kind of, I'm not going to say play with life. I can't remember the phrase exactly, but you're sort of working with DNA and RNA, which is kind of the building blocks of life. So I think that those kinds of things combined with plant science is what really got me into it. It's funny because I see some parallels as more and more people are, are delving, you know, people who have a passion, scientists who have a passion for this topic are are discovering more and more about our DNA and about the DNA of all living things. And I think it's only a matter of time before what we consider, you know, I'm using air quotes for the listeners, junk DNA. <laughs> it's just stuff that we, you know, it's just the DNA that we don't understand or haven't been able to learn more about as far as humans concerned. And I'm sure in, in the plant world, it's the same. It's almost like undiscovered frontier. It's almost similar to this, the discovery of space in the other direction, but just looking inward, I imagine there's no shortage of pathways to go down to just learn more about things that we have, we've only begun to tap into. Oh, for sure. I think that that's, it, it, the industry did have a sort of bad rep just because GMO crops for food was sort of the natural application, if you will, of the technology. But I think since then, we've started to see new ways in which scientists have applied genetic engineering in plants for non-food causes. And that's where you really start. I think it was, I heard of a research group in Israel that was producing insulin for humans from the tobacco plant. Wow. Yeah. So I think those are kinds of examples where, you, you know, as long as you're not eating it, maybe you don't, <laughs> and it's grown in a contained environment and then disposed of safely, there's no cross-contamination with nature, suddenly it doesn't, you know, feel as bad. But if you're eating GMO corn, then there's a little bit of a not-so-nice feeling towards it. It's funny because you think about uh, substances like tobacco, which for the longest time were processed in a way that wasn't, you know, as close to where it, it was naturally sourced from. And if you think about Native Americans using tobacco as a, a sacrament and as something that was part of their environment on a regular basis, you know, you start to kind of put pieces together like, well, maybe there was something they knew intuitively <laughs> that was helpful for them. And now science is able to pull the, push the pieces together, which I always think is fascinating. It's true, right? I mean, that there is so much knowledge that sometimes I feel is just get lost with the ages and you know, plants that we have historically used. So being from India, there's a strong herbal plant science industry uh, called Ayurveda. And there's so many things that, you know, you probably heard this from your grandmother or your great-grandmother, but, you know, all that knowledge is lost and we're sort of rediscovering it in the context of modern science. So I definitely think that there's a lot left to uncover there. Yeah, definitely exciting times. So as you left university and started entering the, the, the nine to five world, uh, and you had a couple of different jobs, but leading up to, you know, as we get to more of the interactive, which was the first opportunity for you to, you know, play more in this space? I know that you worked at the Bombay Hemp Company. And was that like a, the first chance that you got to kind of put into practice some of what you had been learning? Yeah, definitely. I think that that was straight out of, you know, university. It was a young company on a very ambitious mission and they were brilliant guys, but they all had a business background. And at the time they were just getting off the ground and they were looking to pull together people who had maybe the technical chops to get to what they needed. 
And it was fairly controversial at the time, I'd say, back then in India, right? Because it, it's still a scheduled or regulated crop. They have made significant progress now on the hemp front, where it's legalized in certain states. But it was definitely, I remember my family saying, are you sure you want to work with this company? <laughs> and is it really hemp they're talking about? Or and so yeah. that's kind of what got me to put some of the skills to practice. I remember they were looking at building germplasm or a genetics library, which okay. would enable them to build the first Indian strain of hemp, low THC. And in order to do that, they needed seeds, right? So I think one of the interesting activities that I got to do was to design, if you were to go strain hunting, what would you be looking for? Like if you had to evaluate a crop and you didn't have a technical background, what are some of the things that you could do? Like look at the size of the leaves, the kinds, shapes of the leaves, things like that. So it's it very interesting. And I did get to travel a little bit for the job to very interesting parts of India that's at the max I can say about that, but it was definitely <laughs> a very interesting kickoff to a career within plant sciences. And in many ways, they kind of were the first people that maybe gave a little bit of impetus, or maybe planted a seed, if you will, to what would then eventually become Nordatech. The path was not linear, though, because I didn't go straight from that to, to Nordatech. So without going into specifics, you can't tease out the idea that there might be a story there to a podcaster, because I'll just pull that thread. Oh, no. <laughs> so, but I'm just curious, is there anything, without naming names or locations, is there one story that, that comes to mind for you? Sure. I remember that there is a part of India that where cannabis grows naturally. And there are, I think, two or three states which are just south of the, I mean, geographically on a map, south of the Himalayas, so the sub-Himalayan ranges. Okay. Historically, they have been known as sort of the places that supply cannabis yeah. to the country. But it's also the place where if you are actively looking for germplasm or seeds, that's where you're going to find them. They're growing out in the wild. So it was quite an adventure, you know, traveling to these locations and sitting and listening to the stories that some of the farmers had to tell. And what they didn't understand is, why do you want the seeds? Right? Well, that was the <laughs> That's not the fun part. <laughs> exactly. They're like, are you sure you don't want this other stuff? And I was like, you can't take that with you. That's funny. <laughs> so, yeah. That's great. So you had a, a couple of short stints as you move into Nordetect with uh, Space 10 and, and, and Live. Any highlights from those engagements as, as you were coming up with the idea or that helped for what would be, eventually become Nordetect? Yeah, Liv was great because it was a close friend of mine who was a founder of the company and he was getting it off the ground. And that was just about when I moved into to Denmark and I was looking to really kind of make a mark, right? Try and, try and make a splash. And it was an opportunity to really kind of get a little bit back into engineering, sort of this weird hybrid background of engineering and plant sciences. And I kind of almost felt that this was an opportunity to leverage some of the engineering skills and also provide a bit of learning. I had just found a hacker space at the time, so kind of geeking out a little bit on programming and electronics. Okay. And this was a short stint with him, almost like an impromptu co-founder of, of the company. I still stay on as an advisor, but uh, I built the early prototypes and kind of validated some of the assumptions that the company had at the time. 
And I think it was a lot of fun. That kind of also gave me a little bit of what it would like to be, you know, in the startup scene. It was a completely different industry. It was med tech, but, you know, just a kind of small team with four people and figuring things out and, you know, the wins and the, the losses that you feel on a daily basis. That was kind of a first taste of entrepreneurship in the startup world. Exactly. And Space <laughs> 10 was, I think, really one of the most interesting experiences outside Nordsect. So Space 10 is a design and innovation lab based out of Copenhagen that is backed by IKEA, solely backed by IKEA. Oh, wow. And although it is backed by IKEA, it has nothing to do with furniture. It has everything to do with sort of building a better everyday life for the many people. I remember that slogan because they said it a lot. <laughs> When I was there, this is interesting because we built the first indoor farm in Denmark. It was in a basement. Yeah, it was in a basement in um, Copenhagen's meatpacking district Okay. in a room that was actually, I think, a, a meat cellar at one point. right? Because <laughs> you could tell from the tiles and the sort of industrial taps and things that you had and the ventilation and stuff. I think we put together six systems and we were growing lettuce, baby leaves, and microgreens okay. in this basement as a proof of concept. Yeah. So this would have been uh, 2017? Yep, 2017. Yeah. Wow. And it's interesting to see because it's not such a surprise when you think about IKEA in terms of innovation and you know creating environments, habitable environments for people. And it just makes sense that this is something that would be interested in. And I think there's been some recent news about them diving deeper into the indoor ag tech space as well recently. Exactly. I think that that was one of the functions that Space 10 played. It kind of exposed them to the spaced out concepts and, you know, made it you know, in a kind of playful way approachable. So you'd have executives that came by at the time and then really kind of got sort of deep dived into what those things were and without having to go through and maybe even express interest in a topic, right? So now, on the other hand, it is, I think it's going, I don't even, I can't remember the names of the companies that they've signed with, but they have investments. I believe they have an investment in AeroFarms. They have launched with a couple of different providers, either in-store or production just outside their stores. Because I think this is one of the other interesting facts. IKEA is, I think, the seventh or eighth largest restaurant chain in the world. <laughs> Wow. But people don't realize that because yeah. it's all these restaurants in the stores. So I think that they have definitely a big impact that they could make if they you know, actually deployed indoor ag at scale. Yeah, that's something I was having a conversation with Ali Daniali from Harvests. And uh, he was he's got a great, what he has called, his penned is indoor farming as a service model. So it's interesting because he's having conversations with the people who are placing those big orders and it's usually the people that are behind the scenes it's the restaurant groups it's the cruise lines it's the hotel chains it's the ikeas of the world and you know i think we forget sometimes how much food is consumed at those establishments and that are not traditional groceries and, and restaurants oh yes for sure i think that that the food chain i think that was one of the first things i evaluated with them was the process of going from production to consumption and it's not as linear as you would think. And so, yeah, I'm not surprised. 
So now moving into present day, we're at least start of Nordetech. We're big fans of origin stories here. So tell me a little bit about the story of the, the founding of it and a little bit about your, your co-founders and, and where the idea came from. So even though Space 10 happened in 2017, the idea for uh, back then, the idea was called Phytometrica. <laughs> and and that sort of meant like plant measurements. And, and this is in late 2016, my co-founder, Palak Segel, who I've known since my bachelor's. Okay. She was a researcher at the Indian Institute of Technology in, in Bombay and was working on medical diagnostics. And I was in Copenhagen sort of working with Liv and, and kind of doing these electronic projects. And at that time, I think that was the year that Prime Minister Modi came into power in India. And a big part of his campaign was this thing called the Soil Health Card. It was okay. a kind of report card that you would get off your land, feeding into this concept of, you know, our land is our wealth, it's the productive capacity of the nation. But after so this sort of implementation didn't live up to the expectation that, you know, was promised. And that was kind of from the ground level, right? Maybe it was great on the top, but I think at the ground level, if you spoke to farmers who had to do these tests, they didn't really feel the value. And a lot of it had to do with timing. And so when she was working in medical diagnostics, uh, we were chatting about how, you know, can we not do what happened to the medical diagnostics industry about 40 years ago for agriculture? And that's kind of where this, that was a spark, right? Yeah. You can get a, a sort of, a glucose test for diabetes patients, they do them every day, a finger prick test at home, and you get, you know, glucose data that's life-saving. And so why can't you do soil testing, back in that time, soil testing that could potentially ensure richer harvests and also prevent you from polluting with too much fertilizer? That was kind of like the spark. Okay. And both being technologists, it was like, oh, wow, I can leverage the kind of knowledge I'm gaining from the research I'm doing now. And I was along the lines of, oh, I, I was a big fan of computer vision. I said, well, I can whip up a device and we can get this going. So that was kind of the initial spark. And it was sort of like it laid the foundations for where we are today. We don't actively target outdoors, but, but that was sort of a function of a couple of different things, you know deep technology companies having uh, what you see is with diagnostics, you see it when it's on the market, but a lot of these med tech innovations, you know, what we didn't realize took decades to come to market. <laughs> so yeah. the first, first couple of years was heavy technology development. And it was all about outdoors and soil and farming and, you know, kind of enabling farmers to use less fertilizer. And so talk a little bit about the evolution. I love the mission of the company, improve the equity, quality, and footprint of food through technology. I'm sure that went through a couple of iterations as well, but can you talk a little bit about, you know, how you decide what you started with in terms of what Nordetect was going to be working on and, and how that's evolved over the years? So when you consider the why, right, like why do you want to build a piece of technology that can measure chemicals in soil and water and plants? The purpose, which I don't want to claim, you know, that there was, it was my idea, it came from Palak, where she talked about how in India there are farmers that take on a lot of debt to buy fertilizer and other inputs that, you know, one bad season and they can't pay back debt. And it's not to banks, it's to loan sharks. So there were suicides in the orders of tens of thousands 
of farmers who yeah, I remember reading about that. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of was one side of it, right? These people are extremely important to the nation. They're a major part of GDP. And if they can't produce, they can not only feed their families. So that's a food security question, but also supply to the nation. And I think that sort of the vision for the company stemmed from that. And although, you know, it's a tech solution at the end of the day, right? We still hold that close to heart. Like this is where at scale, this is where we want to go. We don't, of course, we sell in the US, we sell in Canada, but for us as founders, the vision is really to be able to provide either a product or a service that can help de-risk cultivation for those farmers. Yeah. Maybe that's the 10, year 10 goal or something like that. But I mean, eventually that's where we want to get to. And food security, I think from the time we did our master's in the UK, food security was always a big topic. And realizing that it's kind of what we're seeing now. There are certain, in a globalized food chain, there are certain regions that will produce large amounts, way more than they need. And then you will have other regions that are dependent. And I think that building this re resilience is also one of the factors that we hold close in indoor agriculture is so strongly touted as one of those industries that can actually build food resilience in different parts of the world. So a lot of these things, you know, when um, if you work with, a, with an agency, they really want to get to the guts of where do you guys come from with this product and why? Like you could have done anything with your lives, why you're doing this? And I think that these are some of the emotions that kind of come together when we think about the company and why in the hard times we're able to push forward. And talk a little bit about the challenges as would this have been your first time as CEO? Yes. So this is my first venture driving it from start to now. I think that it has definitely been an interesting journey specifically because of certain factors that no one has a playbook for, right? When we were, I think late 2019, we were a soil company. We were looking at soil testing. We were getting products into the hands of farmers, thinking about how we're going to scale this because Outdoor ag is huge, expansive in terms of space. And so when COVID hit, we had to figure out how to sort of be able to sit in a building or at home and then sell. And most, it's a physical product. Most of these things need an onboarding. It needs a demo, their skepticism. How do you convince the client or the customer without actually being there in front of them? And I think that that has been one of the biggest challenges as a first-time CEO to overcome, definitely a curveball, right? Because everything you learn pre-COVID might still apply, but how do you, especially with a hardware company where you have physical products, right? You need to go into the office, you need to put these things together, you have a supply chain. All of these things are, I would say, factors that maybe complicated things a little bit. In some ways, I kind of feel like maybe set us back a year. But the interesting thing is that that's happened to everyone, right? So a lot of industries, a lot of companies have kind of felt this exact same shift. Personally, it's been definitely a roller coaster. I think that anyone who says otherwise on their first time is either very lucky or maybe a little bit ignorant. But I think going through the highs and the lows from, you know, the idea to the patenting to getting your first prototypes, destroying those prototypes, <laughs> getting your first customer, losing your first customer. I think those, <laughs> the, one of our, our first investors said it the best. He said, it's like a sine wave. 
and you have these peaks and these dips and you keep going up and down. And then as you mature as a founder and especially founder CEO, they don't get lower. You just get better at dealing with them, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. You still experience so the same. Yeah. Yeah. As an entrepreneur and business owner myself, I think one of the hardest lessons to learn is to become comfortable with failure and not really see it as a negative, but as a learning opportunity. And it's a function of like, you know, in the dip of that sign wave, it's a, real, it's a, it's a measure of how quickly you get up, <laughs> dust yourself off. You, there's no time to wallow in self-pity at that point because you have to keep moving forward. So it's an interesting muscle to develop. And that's, and obviously something like COVID, the playbooks just had to get thrown in the trash, like nothing that would work up until that point. And I think Anyone who came out of that, it just has to have just a thicker skin, more resiliency, the ability to recover and bounce back, and the ability to be prepared for you know what is essentially a black swan event. But I think if something like that were to happen again, I think anyone who's made it through that would see that as a similar type of event, and then you know put that same type of thinking into process into like how do we address this event, and and so I think overall and not you know, mitigating a lot of what, what happened during that time. But, you know, the folks that came out stronger, I think, are much more well-suited for the future. Oh, certainly. I think that with machine learning and neural networks and stuff, they say that if a model or a network has seen something before, it's better suited to be able to predict what to do when it sees that again. And I think that that is a lot of training that we've received, startup founders and business owners, and just as the entire human race, you know, who is of, of a younger generation that hasn't seen some of the challenges like this before or, or any hardship that, like of this scale, it's definitely a life lesson that, you know, even if you see early warning signs of things like that coming up, you're, you're going to sort of look at how, what we can do to prepare. So for the benefit of the listener who may not know the specifics of Nordatech, your services. Do you want to give an overview of what the current offering is, who an ideal customer is, and where your focus is now? Yeah. So as with when we were founded, we are a portable analytical company. We develop um, hardware, software, and portable biosensors, disposable biosensors. The simplest way to think about it is like the COVID test the quick test or the rapid test that you do. It's kind of a rapid test with an electronic device that helps you diagnose the status of your water, your soil, or your plant sap. And it provides a readout for the key macronutrients, your nitrates, phosphates, potassium, NPKs, and others, allowing you to understand how your, your crop is performing. So it's kind of a sensor for crop health. And off late, we've put an enhanced emphasis on digital services. So we can digitize your lab reports. We provide you with easy to use tools to compare. Because a lot of the indoor ag community is focused on data generation and, and understanding and learning through iteration. And we spend a lot of time working with customers to understand how we can make that process very simple. So we, we sell a subscription to a bundle of the analyzer, the microfluidic chips that actually give you the test, and then the digital platform all packaged together so that it's a simplified, unified service. And if you need more tests, you can always top up. And what's been the reception or feedback from early clients or existing clients who are who have been happy with the service? And then what, what are some of the things that they're saying about it? I think what was really interesting is that we sort of 
we say that we're faster than the lab because the lab takes five days and, and this takes five minutes. And that was really the first response because they always wanted to compare the two, right? Yeah. And they would do the test and then they were like, okay, we're done. Okay, wow, we've <laughs> never had this before, right? Okay, yeah. now we have to wait a week till we can figure out how good it was. So I think the speed of actually generating this data from crop was definitely one of the wow factors for our first customers. And the fact, when we designed the product, we figured that this is going to be a farmer or this, the, the help that farmers have, like let's say farm hands doing the testing outdoors. So we designed it in a way that was so easy to use, right? And I think that that was like, they're like, that's it. Like, what else do we have? Like other <laughs> buttons or there, is there anything else that needs to happen? So that kind of played into it as well. And I think some of the downsides have been like the web platform or the, the sort of the digital product. It's not intuitive. Okay. So we've seen that as time progressed, we've sort of released early and released frequently. That's been our strategy. So we had early access customers starting March 21. Some of them, you know, we did three month trial, they then converted and then they've seen us grow. So overall, it's been a journey going from a little bit of hesitancy, I have to say, because it's like, is, does it really work? How, how are you offering this to now there's like, okay, you know, this is when can we get more? Can you give us more parameters? Can you measure these things? Can you measure bacteria? Interesting. So, so I think that the feedback has been very motivating for us. And how much of it is an education process for some of these farms in terms of um, coming from the business world? It's that maximum of what gets measured gets managed, right? I think it's Peter Drucker, if I, I've got that correct. But sometimes it's they don't know what they don't know. And how much of that is prevalent in what you do in terms of educating them and, and showing them the benefits of doing the testing and having access to data that may, they may not have known that they needed, but then becomes a valuable part of their production process. You know, you hit the nail on the head with that one, right? Because in many ways, we felt that there is an education process and just being a startup, you know, trying to get off the ground, we've had to really filter real hard. So you'll find customers that are already doing lab testing on a routine basis. They know exactly why they're doing it, what they're getting out of it. Those are just easy for us because we don't have to go through the education process. Some of the biggest names in the industry who you would think are doing everything possible don't know this. Interesting. And that was the biggest thing. I'm like, you can't raise, you know, more than... 10 to 15 million dollars i know that that puts a few names out there but you know you can't raise that much money and not have thought of this like yeah so i think that we sort of filter hard we focus on people that already do testing so they understand it because they immediately get the value right yeah. you cut down the time you give us this data that we can work with amazing there have been cl clients and customers where we felt like we it was worth the education so we would put in the extra effort we've done we on our like being sort of from a scientific background, we always felt like proof is in the pudding. So we need to do validations. We need to work with third-party labs to get this product verified so we could put out a white paper that people can trust. And that's kind of always been close to us. But right now we are working with kind of almost call them field trials, almost air quotes here, because you're not doing it in the field, but you're sort of, you're doing a study over a period of time to show not a non-believer, but maybe someone who doesn't understand the value, the impact of using technology like this. 
So it's definitely been an interesting journey. I think we're very much in the upper segment of the market, working with customers that have raised a lot of money, that have a plant science team that you know already know. So a lot of these companies have R&D teams. If you're uh, and they're startups, right? As a startup, if you have a big R and D team, you've raised a, a fair amount of money, and uh, they go through the process of vetting the product, and then with the eventual goal of implementing it on a routine operation. Companies that maybe don't have that are slower, and you know, I think that that's just the, the way it is. And once they see other companies using it, they'll start asking why, like, what are you getting out of that? So it's a process. <laughs> It seems uh, that there's there's an opportunity, or this is something that you're probably alluding to already. These smaller companies that don't have the R and D teams, that haven't received the investment for R and D teams, it's almost like a function of what you provide is almost like an outsourced R and D as a service <laughs> functionality. It's funny because that has been a question that has come up several times, right? Yeah. So you're doing the the sales conversation and. Usually, the, you, you expect you know, standard issue questions. How much does it cost? And what can it do? And does it do this and that? And then several times, we've got the question, you know, do you also provide consulting services on top of that so you can help us improve? And that was something that we weren't necessarily thinking of, which, um, you know, it, it is a valuable avenue. We're thinking about how we can provide this in a digital way because we're not we we were we weren't set out to be a consulting company or you know I think that's an industry in itself the agronomist slash advisor industry for agriculture but yes I think in many one of the VCs that I spoke with they said that we think the we don't invest in vertical farms but we want to see the tech providers that can take technology and help upgrade or upskill the smaller farms and bring them up to the level of these larger farms with a lot of investment. Companies that can do that are really the ones that we see will be, you know, the big ones of the next day. Yeah, it's that age-old example here in the States of that the people who actually made the money in the gold rush are not the people looking for the gold, but the people who were selling the picks and the shovel. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yes, sir. How big is the company now? We are 10 staff. And we just hired our first staff member in the U.S., which is oh good, yeah, exactly. So we, you know, that visit we've been visiting New York, I think, every six months. Okay. And if it hadn't been for COVID, I think we would have been ten people in the U.S. I think at the time when we we, we got an investment from an investor in New York State, and part of it was towards bringing and establishing a U.S. footprint. Interesting. And when COVID happened they kind of removed that term because they were like, we, we're not going to expect people to do that, right? Yeah. And so we've just seen the industry grow so fast in New York State, both in the East Coast and the West Coast. And so it was obvious that we needed to we needed to have a, a place there. And sort of with this first recruit, it includes me spending more time in the U.S. and sort of building out right now a commercial and operations team but potentially doing some amount of production of key components in the U.S. as well. What activity do you see in New York? I'm curious because I grew up in New York, so I grew up in Yonkers, New York, oh, wow. just outside Man Manhattan. I've lived in New York City as well, so it's New York. I consider New York City my home. Home now is Minneapolis, but I'm just curious what activity you're seeing in New York. So right now, it's primarily commercial, so sales and operations, but 
upstate New York, right? Rochester, which is where the investor was from. We see that there's a lot of knowledge when it comes to manufacturing, right? You have had companies like Kodak, Bosch and Lomb and Xerox that were kind of stalwarts of their day that came out of Rochester. And so there is, and of course, the universities that, that provide excellent personnel, graduates coming out of them. And you have a series and network of service providers that do anything from lens grinding to putting together optical instruments and then consumables. So there's a lot of expertise there. So it's not something that we're actively doing now, but it's potentially, depending on how the company grows, one of the avenues outside of sales and marketing that we see of immense value. We also have a small connection to Cornell University. We won a competition that they hosted last year called Grow New York, a food and ag competition. And so there is a kind of link with them as well. And they help us with kind of regional landing and integration, trying to get customers and and support systems and so on. So it's safe to say that you'll be a regular attendee at Indoor Ag Tech NYC? (laughs) Definitely. I think so. I think that, you know... Uh, when I chatted to the organizers, they say, yeah, you know, you come in as the startup and then you, next year we're hoping that you're sponsoring a bigger, a bigger booth. You come in with a bigger sponsorship. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think what they did, and I think the company's called Rethink Events. I think that their expertise is in these types of events. I don't know that they actually like indoor ag tech specialists, but they do the event part really, really well. And I think that showed in the event that they put on there. I think there were a couple of um, similar ones because I think they tied it into the, was it the, it was like a, a produce one going on beforehand that in that same location, I think, they, and they were they produced both of those. Exactly. They usually, they sort of their claim to fame, or at least when I found out about the big splash that they made was, it was called the World Agri-Tech Summit. Oh, okay. It was outdoor ag and it brought together, you know, the Bayers, the Syngentas of the world, so the big ag. And that was their flagship event, I believe. Happens in San Francisco and London. I think, I haven't been to one of those, but I think that they are really professional at doing these events. And they always tag them together. So I think there's alternative protein and then... Yeah, that was it, I think, yeah. Exactly. And so indoor ag and alternative protein, very hot topics in the agri and the food tech sides of things. And I think what they do is they pair outdoor farming and animal agriculture together. So that makes sense. Exactly. And I love that they give the opportunity for smaller companies to have those smaller tables because I was just, I was fascinated. And and I recognized that from the podcasting conferences that I used to go to, that's, you would see some of the early, early startups have like a small table where they'd have to stand most of the time but i think that was interesting because the fact that you made the decision to be there you know just speaks for how much how important it is for you to get the word out about what you're doing and it's how we met and and i think i've got a couple of calls with some of the other smaller tables that were out there in the startup phase it's just it's fascinating for me because i love origin stories and, and and i think your story has been really really interesting for you to share I think that that's the catch, right? You want to get them early also. So, you know, you kind yeah. of, you're the one that's that them on. Yeah. 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 So when you think about where the industry is headed and how quickly it's moving, what do you see as the opportunities for Nordetect uh, in terms of growth, either working with the same caliber of, of clients that you have now, or even, you know, branching out into different use cases? I think that we're definitely in a, a bit of a crisis now with energy, right? So the industry is feeling the ripple effect, at least within Europe. 
you see indoor ag in Europe definitely being being hit by this. So when we consider Nordetect and its growth trajectory, we see that we, we try and work with customers as much as we can to influence our R&D. And so without sort of giving away too much of the plan, we see that one of two things is going to stick. We're focusing heavily on being experts in nutrients and crop health from a nutrient perspective and combining that with climate. So how does your climate controller and what you're feeding your crops from an environmental perspective affect what they're eating in terms of nutrients? And the second one is how do you ensure that you're not doing things that can harm them? Because a lot of the times, like, if you have to boil it down, why do people come to us? They usually start thinking about this stuff when they see losses. And so, you know, everyone wants to figure out why are these plants dying and what's going on here? And I think that that's really the future of the company, whether it's hardware or software, it is being able to diagnose these these issues and be able to provide solutions towards it. The diagnostic side, of course, being the analytical tools and the solutions being data analytics combined not only with our own inputs, but also with climate. We see that as the short term. The long term, um, coming back to what I mentioned originally, it is still a dream to go outdoors. It is still the vision to be able to impact the next you know, billion people on the planet. Because we are firm believers that as the price of oil goes up, the price of fertilizer tracks exactly along with that. Yeah, And so I'm confident that we are, we're biding our time, we're growing uh, at a sustainable pace to eventually go outdoors. And, and outdoors is, it's huge, right? It's an industry where you need a lot of muscle, you need a lot of capital, and you need scale in order to truly make an impact. And so I think that coming out of the greenhouse and really moving outdoors is is a future that I personally would like to see for the company and one that is not too far away. That makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think every to a CEO and founder that I've spoken to, you know, everyone's on the same page. It's an all hands on deck moment. You know, every company, whether it's someone that you consider a competitor or doing something similar, like it's such a huge problem to tackle that we need everyone working on this with their own specialties. And then, you know, figuring out, you know, there's the, the overall problem of food scarcity, the supply chain issues, the climate change issues, the sustainability issues. There's so many things to tackle. I think everyone in this industry is going to have their hands full for quite some time. Yeah, I think we need all the competition we get because it's a huge market out there. And, you know, you see every time you see a a potential competitor crop up, A, it validates it because, you know, that there's, you know, the market is so big that there's no one winner. It's very different than just the software and the big tech world. And B, it's a noble cause, right? You, yeah, yeah, it's a business, but you need to help grow more food we need more food so i think that yeah as you said all hands on deck what's a tough question you've had to ask yourself recently how do i want to grow the company i think it's we're at an inflection point right now where we have to take in we not have to but we should take in more capital and then with capital comes dilution and so there's this dilemma in how you want to grow the company and with who you want to grow the company because if you look at the investment market between Europe and the US, and we kind of see ourselves as a part of both, 
you will see very different motivations coming out of American investors and different motivations coming out of European investors. You know, I think that's really a challenge. Can you speak to those a little bit? What, how you, what you see as the difference? Sure. Just from my experience, and this is by no means a generalization, but what we've seen is that at events in the US, when we've, you know, we've pitched in Europe, and when we've pitched in Europe, what we've kind of been told is that, yeah, this is great, but where are you now? What have you achieved today? And, and what's your, there's a lot of focus on the P&L and the balance sheet and arriving at profitability real quick, even if it's at a very small scale. And when you look at American investors, we were almost told the opposite, like, you guys don't brag enough. And so <laughs> it's, it's very interesting to see because it, or maybe historically, it's been about the big vision. They want to see how you're going to, you know, scale to a massive size company, capture huge market share, and then figure out profitability at that time because they know you're gonna go through a series of funding rounds if you are successful. And so I see that, that being in the agricultural industry, it is a, it, you know, you have to do your time in the industry. There's a lot of companies that go up and, and down real quick. And so it almost feels like it would be a no brainer to raise capital in the US just because it is, there's a lot more in terms of sheer number of, of venture capitalists. But that's a big dilemma. That's a big question. How do we want to grow the company? Do we want to consider this differential mindset of maybe reaching profitability faster and maybe growing a bit slower? Or do you want to take in a lot of cash and then grow very aggressively? And the, you know, the, the stock market and the scenario there hasn't really helped at all just because yeah. there's a lot of confusion and uncertainty going on. So I think that, you know, all those things put together, that's definitely been one of the questions that sort of keeps me awake at night, if you will. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about the a recent iGrow newsletter that talked about, uh, they do, I think, a Monday one where they, they show the stock price of all the indoor companies, and they were all like negative. So it wasn't a good sign. But I, I think it's just a function of where we are in terms of like, what we want to call a recession or not. But I think it's it's, uh, I think to your point and to the conversations that you've been having with these investors, if they see the opportunity and they see that you have the subject matter expertise and they've done a bit of their due diligence, then I think that's where they get the confidence from in terms of investing and seeing the bigger play. Because I think if they're an experienced investor, they can spot trends and, and they know they can see overall directionality of an industry. And I, and I think they, you know, that's where they see the, the positive signs here. Yeah, I think that some of the more experienced investors I've spoken to, um, they've, they've said, you know, we're not worried about your stage of company. When you're at a series C, D, where you are looking at your IPO and you need to take in cash to burn to get those numbers perfect for an IPO, those are the companies we're really worried about. And of course, it has a trickle down, you know, effect on earlier stages. But we know that, you know, you've got another, you've know, got a good three or four years before you're even thinking about that kind of stuff. So we're, we're not worried. And this comes from really mature investors who maybe, maybe the partners at the firm have invested during a downturn and things like that. So as we wrap up, the, the hour seems to have flown by. So I want oh, to wow. thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a, just a testament to what a, what a, a lively conversation it's been so far. So, you know, you, you are familiar with the podcast, you're familiar with, with the folks who, who listen to it and, and some of the past guests I've had on. Do you have an ask for this industry, for the listeners of this show? I would say 
specifically, and this is going to be funny, I think that there's a, sometimes a little bit of a lack of respect for food and for the way it's produced. And so I think maybe before you buy that extra head of lettuce, before you buy that extra, you know, ingredient that you may not need and store that in the fridge and then throw it away, maybe consider the farmer or the indoor farmer that that kind of really put a lot of time and energy spending money potentially on companies like us who would help them improve only to produce something that you just threw away. I'd say from a more human side of things, that would definitely be something that would make the world a little better place. And to any indoor farmers out there, if you're looking at improving your crop health and and your harvests, you can always reach out to us at Nordetect, even if it is just for a friendly chat. Well, yeah, I definitely would encourage the listener to do that. Nordetect.com. Any other place you want to send folks to connect with you or the company? Yeah, you can always reach out to me personally on LinkedIn, Keenan Pinto on LinkedIn. I'm happy to spar, even if it is with uh, a company that's maybe getting off the ground. I I really enjoy startup (laughs) culture and and just kind of know where I was back when I started. So yeah, happy to help. Well, Keenan, I appreciate you making time. I know it's late for you there. (laughs) So hopefully you get to wrap up your day. I really enjoyed our conversation. I appreciate you sharing your your fascinating and, and really interesting origin story with our listeners. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again to Keenan for coming on the show and sharing his story. As always, full show notes available at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. Thanks to our season six title sponsor, Cultivated. If you are looking into a vertical farm and don't know where to start or which technology would suit your needs, reach out to them today. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Learn more at cultivated.com. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Just leave out that last E. If you'll be attending the Global Produce and Floral Show in Orlando, Florida, this October 27th through 29th, then please visit the NetLed booth at the Future Tech Pavilion. The team would love to meet you. Podcast production marketing provided by Fullcast. Learn more about how podcasts can be beneficial for your brand at fullcast.co. As a reminder, if you're enjoying this show, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. Tune in next week. Another great conversation. And this time it's with repeat visitor to the podcast, Henry Gordon Smith of Agritecture. Excited to bring him on for a really, really powerful, emotional conversation about some things that have been happening in his life and his journey in the world of ag tech. And uh, as a fun fact, I'll be able to connect with Henry in the AgriMe conference. I'll be in Dubai. I'm getting on a plane tomorrow <laughs> as of this recording, getting ready for my 18-hour trip. Thanks again to Cultivated for helping make that possible. I'm looking forward to connect with Henry, who's going to be speaking there, Callum from IGS, and the team at Cultivated. Really excited. I'll have a full report for you when I get back. So excited to share that adventure with you. Until we meet again, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published. 